0: My son and I were discussing this question the other day, where is Jesus? Which is a good question, isn't it? We can't see Jesus today, and yet Christians live their lives in a way that we say is ruled by him. We can't hear Jesus, but we listen to his voice every day. We speak to him. We've done that already in this gathering, haven't we? where is Jesus now? Well, there are a number of ways of answering that question, but I think the dominant one that the Bible gives us is, as we've already heard, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We don't say a formal creed that often at All Souls, but all three authorised creeds of the Church of England make that point. They contain the truth that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. It is that central to the Christian faith. Or hear what the great uh, French reformer, John Calvin, says about it. He, that's Jesus, therefore sits on high, transfusing us with his power, that he may quicken us to spiritual life, sanctify us by his Spirit. Adorn his church with diverse gifts of his grace. Keep it safe from all harm by his protection. Restrain the raging enemies of his cross and of our salvation by the strength of his hand. And finally, hold all power in heaven and on earth. All this he does until he shall lay low all his enemies, who are our enemies too, and complete the building of his church. This is the true state of his kingdom. This is the power that the father has conferred on him until in coming to judge the living and the dead, he accomplishes his final act. The language is a bit old, isn't it? But Calvin's point is clear. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the father, giving us power, making us alive protecting us and building his church. That sounds pretty good and pretty important. So why don't we talk about that a bit more? Well, allow me to leave that question hanging for a bit. We will come back to it. But let's look at Psalm 110. So if you've closed it, it's on page 613 of the church Bibles. Here we have a song that's written about 3,000 years ago. The title tells us that it is by King David, a fact that Jesus confirms when he quotes its opening lines in discussion with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, as Matthew, Mark and Luke all record in their gospels for us. Jesus tells us that David was speaking as a prophet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, seeing things that he could not otherwise have seen. So what is it that David sees in Psalm 110? Well, perhaps a better question might be, what is it that David hears? For in the Psalm, we hear the Lord, capital letters, if you look at that, the first verse, capital letters, Lord, giving two messages, two oracles to David. The first one starts there in verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, and the second one starts there in verse four, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And both of them seem a bit weird to us on first reading, perhaps. What is God talking about? Why is this Lord, capital letters, revealing to King David a conversation that he, the Lord, seems to be having with someone else who's also called Lord at the end of verse 1, not capital letters? Who is he? Or, verse 4, why does the Lord, capital letters again, call someone a priest forever? And who is Melchizedek? And why are these two messages, these two oracles, oracles put in the same psalm? Lots and lots of questions. So let's see if we can kind of sift through it to find the gold in this psalm. We'll need to work quite hard over the next uh, few minutes to answer those questions, but I I hope it will pay off as we see what it means for us today in a few minutes' time. So, question one. Who are the Lord and the Lord? Verse one. English is slightly unhelpful at this point, because when I say Lord and Lord, you can't tell which one I'm talking about. But they are fundamentally different words in Hebrew. So, As I said, the first one, written capital letters, you see that at the beginning of verse one again, that represents the letters that we kind of say sometimes as Yahweh. It's a representation of the name that God revealed to Moses in chapter three of Exodus at the burning bush. I am who I am, we sometimes uh, render it as. It's a special name, and there's no way that a Hebrew like David would ever use it to mean anyone else than the Lord God, the creator of the heavens and earth, the true king of Israel. It's God's name for himself to speak of his covenant love and faithfulness. The second Lord, not capital letters, is a different Hebrew word. And it means something like master. It's a term of respect and honour, showing that the person that you're calling Lord is above you in status. Kings, governors, military leaders, they could all sort of be called by this word. And so it's a bit weird that David, God's king over all of Israel, should call someone Lord, Master. And yet he does. David is being let into a conversation between the creator God Yahweh and Yahweh's true king, someone far greater than even David himself. It'll be no surprise to any of you who've been following our summer series in the Psalms that this person is Jesus, and we will get to that in a moment. But let's just deal with verse four, the questions from that as well, because together with verse one, it's sort of Uh, Forms the foundation of a magnificent building that scripture wants to build on top of it. Let me read verse 4 again. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So we'll take questions 2 and 3 together. Why does God call the Lord a priest forever and... Who is Melchizedek? Two questions together in verse four. So we have Yahweh, capital letter, uh, Lord, making a solemn promise. He will not break to this same person, this David's Lord or master. And the promise is that he will be a priest, a representative of humans to God and God to humans, a kind of go between But he is no ordinary priest. He is a priest forever, which is a bit odd, because you can only really be a priest whilst you're alive. And there's another odd thing. This priest is of the order of Melchizedek. And that isn't the normal sort of order or group of priests in ancient Israel. They were the sons of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. But when we remember that one of the things that David did early on in his reign as king was to capture the city of Jerusalem, it might begin to make a little bit more sense to us. We can picture David sitting in his new capital on the fortress hill, which is called Zion, which is there in verse 2. And God uses this language of um, Old Testament history to make this promise to David because David is now sitting in the position that Melchizedek once sat in he is king of Jerusalem just as Melchizedek was when he first appears back in Genesis chapter 14 and in Genesis 14 we also find out that Melchizedek is priest of God most high so in this verse verse 4 David seems to be declared a priest who is also a king, like Melchizedek. Neither of them served in the sanctuary like the normal priests, offering sacrifices, but they were priests in the go-between sense. Now, I hope that answering those questions briefly helps us to see what this psalm is about a bit more. Because great though David was, and he was great, God told him, This psalm is not about you. Verse 1. Let me read it again. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It is about David's Lord. And verse 4, as we've just seen, it's about a priest king who will rule forever. As Peter pointed out on the day of Pentecost, David died and he was buried in Jerusalem. He was not this priest king forever. So the search goes on among David's descendants and his successors for one who is the king of this psalm. A king who God would give amazing and total victory to. Verse 1. He would rest his feet on his enemies like a footstool, as if there was no danger at all. Verses 2 and 3, if you look at those, God himself would make this king's kingdom bigger and provide him with a powerful and willing army. And whilst the picture of verses 1 to 3 is sort of, of God being the active one in this, with the king just kind of sitting there, it changes in verses 5 to 7 if you look down at those now we see the king will do his job of smashing enemies like we hear in psalm 2 in their arrogance god's enemies had raised uh, had risen up against the lord and his anointed king and so verse 6 if you look at that they will be judged And the king will keep going, verse 7, until the job is done. Either the drink that uh, is referenced there is um, a refreshment to renew his strength in the middle of the battle, or it's that kind of victory drink at the end. Either way, he lifts his head high in victory, the last line. There is an incredibly tight connection Between Lord, capital letters, and Lord, not capital letters, his king, they work together seamlessly. And so for the first readers of the psalm, in David's day and in later Old Testament times, we can see how they were meant to react to hearing these words. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. It says, your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. They were meant to long for God to extend the priest king's rule over all the earth so that justice would be done. They were meant to be loyal to this king, eager to be in his army on the day of his battle. And each new king, as they came along, would be greeted with this expectation and this question. Is he the Lord's priest king forever? Every time they entered battle under his banner, that would be the question. And every time the answer was no. Solomon, David's son, was great. And as we heard a few weeks ago in Psalm 45, he or one of the later kings was described in majestic splendor on his wedding day. But they were not forever priest kings. Psalm 89 that we looked at last week laments when comparing God's promises for what this king should be like and the reality of exile without a king. Expectations. And those expectations remained even under Roman occupation. We see that in John chapter 12. The crowds, they know from Psalm 110 and elsewhere that the Messiah must live forever. And so they are confused about how Jesus can be the Messiah and be predicting his death. They had the same expectations. When we uh, first got married, Emily and I thought we might uh, learn how to do cryptic crosswords. Turns out we were not very good at them. However much we kind of stared at the clues... We just did not get it. Even when you sort of get those practice ones where it tells you the clue, it explains it, and it tells you the answer, we still didn't get it most of the time. Perhaps that is how it felt to New Testament, uh, to uh, people in the first century wondering how God was going to fulfill Psalm 110. Until that is, along comes Jesus, and he says, "It's me, I'm the answer." In Mark chapter 14, he's standing before the high priest and the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law. And they ask him, "Are you the Messiah?" And Jesus kind of reaches back into Old, hes- Old Testament history. And he says, Here's one I made earlier. And he mixes Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7, and he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, he says, I am the Messiah, I am the fulfillment. Of Psalm 110. I am great David's greater son. I am his Lord. I am God's forever priest king. And you remember what happens. They scream blasphemy. This is the last straw. This is why he must die. They say, You cannot be the Messiah. And to prove it, you will die on a shameful Roman cross. They don't like the way that he is fulfilling Psalm 110, bringing justice and defeating God's enemies his way. They don't like the crowds flocking to him, eager to be his on the day of his battle. And so they think we must stop him. But God had sworn on oath to this man that he would reign forever. God defeated this man's and our enemies, sin and death at the cross. And he proved that by raising Jesus from the dead. As we saw a few weeks ago when we looked at Psalm two, uh, Acts 2 sorry, in the morning, Peter uses Psalm 110 to say that the resurrection is proof that Jesus is exalted, and he's now sitting at God's right hand. Hebrews 7 tells us that it is on the basis of Jesus' indestructible life, his resurrection, that he is declared a priest. Jesus is God's priest-king, and he reigns forever forever. And he is sitting now at the right hand of the Father, as Psalm 110 verse 1 says. So here's the implication for us today. Here's the first one. Jesus is God's priest king who reigns forever. Up on the screen will come a list of places in the New Testament where it says that, where it talks about Jesus sitting at God's right hand. You don't need to read them all. You don't need to write them all down. Just look how many there are. Every time you read in your Bibles of Jesus sitting at God's right hand, think Jesus is God's priest king who reigns forever. Think he is in control. He will bring justice. He will defeat all his enemies. We can react to that wonderful truth like the first readers of the psalm. We should say, how exciting to be in this king's army. It's not that your country needs you poster. It's the opposite, isn't it? Please let me join up. You hear sad stories of recruits in the First World War lying to, uh, lying about their age, desperate to get to the front line to fight for king and country. Now, we don't need to lie to be in Jesus' army, but I suspect that many of us, most of us even, are more likely to shirk our responsibilities or at least to want to than to long to be In Jesus' army. How do you feel about being part of Jesus' army? I asked at the beginning why we don't talk about this truth a bit more. And I think the answer is because we don't think of ourselves in a battle often enough. We are often too comfortable, either as individuals or as churches. We're not taking metaphorical flack. And so we don't think we need a warrior as our priest-king, who is reigning forever, who is fighting for us. Now, we might feel a little bit uncomfortable with this uh, war language when talking about the Christian life, but it's the language of Psalm 110. And our brothers and sisters in the early church knew it, and used it. And our brothers and sisters in so many places around the world know it and use it as well. I bet this truth is on their hearts and their lips a lot more than it is on ours, perhaps, in 21st century London. Jesus is God's priest king who reigns forever. Perhaps as the culture around us, in and outside the church, in our staff rooms, in our schools, in our homes even. As that culture turns more and more away from the exclusive claims of Jesus and his call to radical living for him. Perhaps we'll find ourselves clinging to this truth more and more. I really do hope that is true of us. Jesus is God's priest-king who reigns forever. Second implication. Jesus is God's priest-king who made the once-for-all sacrifice. Hebrews goes further than it already has, the book of Hebrews, and it moulds our two messages, our two oracles, together. The resurrection proves that Jesus is God's priest-king who reigns forever. That's kind of verse 4 of our psalm ticked off, according to Hebrews chapter 7. And that means that verse 1 of our psalm must be true too. Jesus must be sitting at the right hand of the Father. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 to 12 with me. That's on page and. Keep a finger still in Psalm 110 if you can. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 to 14. It says, But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The writer to the Hebrew says that Jesus has finished his work of providing a sacrifice for sin. And so he is waiting, sitting, waiting for all his enemies to become his footstool. The work is finished, and he's just waiting for everyone else to catch up. Imagine an athlete who's kind of so far ahead of the competition that um, he or she is showered and waiting for the competitors as they finally stagger across the finish line. Jesus is God's priest king who made the once-for-all sacrifice. We don't need to strive, but to trust him. The great enemies of sin and death are defeated. Again, perhaps we don't think about this truth of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father as often as we should, because we think too little of those enemies. Sin and death. We put them in boxes. We put death in a box marked 60 years' time or whatever it is, and we think it's safe there. But the reality is different. Only by God's special grace in Christ is our sin defeated. And only by his common grace do we happen to live in a time and a place of incredible medical care. That makes us feel secure against death. But we're not. It is all around us. That's why one of the things on that What's On card is an evening uh, talking about C.S. Lewis's thoughts on grief and death. September the 14th. Do come along to that. Death is still with us, isn't it? And so we desperately need this king, priest, who made the once-for-all sacrifice. He is the only priest who can deal with sin and death for us. And he has their reign of terror is over for those who trust Jesus' death and resurrection. Those who look to him as he sits enthroned at God's right hand. Let me read verses 1 and 4 of Psalm 110 again. The Lord says to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is God's priest king who reigns forever. Jesus is God's priest king who made the once-for-all sacrifice. Will you join his army? Will you trust his death? Will you look to him sitting enthroned on high at the right hand of the Father? I'm going to invite the band uh, to come back up, and I will lead us in a prayer in a moment. Our Father, we praise you that that is where Jesus is, seated at your right hand because of his indestructible life, that you raised him there. And we pray that we would be his willing people, his willing army, and that we would trust in his death. We pray that in his name. Amen.